Our God, we give you thanks and praise for the love that you express to us every day and the fact that we have life. We have the health that each has. We have the opportunity to, to worship together in God's house. We have uh, so many of the good things of this life. Father, forgive us where sometimes we complain and we don't even really recognize how well off we, we are. Father, I pray that this morning our focus will be upon you and we will acknowledge that you are present with us here right now, unseen but very real. And as we study this passage of Scripture, which focuses on the tabernacle and, and some of the furniture within it and, and the meaning, uh, the great meaning of these uh, implements and of that structure, uh, re in reference to your transcendence and your eminence. Lord, I pray that you will give us insight and understanding and that which will help us in our daily walk with you. Father, I do pray for those that are not able to be with us today. Uh, some are far away and uh, in uh, traveling, and we pray for your blessing and your protection upon them. And Father, I ask now that in every class in our Sunday school and in the service which is are taking place at this same hour that you will be very present in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, I'd like for you to turn to the 25th chapter of Exodus. I'd like to read beginning at verse 23 of Exodus 25. And you, you shall make the table, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, one and a half cubits high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a gold border around it. And you shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. And you shall make four gold rings for it, and put rings on the four corners which are on its feet, four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, so that with them the table may be carried. And you shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour libations. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. I first became a believer back when I was in my early teen years, about 14. And not long after that, I started reading the Bible for the first time. And reading through passages like this was, to say the least, dull. <laughs> to say the most, inexplicable. Who cares? <laughs> you know, about all this gold and stuff, and what in the world could it possibly mean? And, you know, even if someone were to explain it to a 14-year-old, you're not too sure you really get the hang of it. But uh, we've been looking at... God's manifestation of his presence here in this desert setting. As you read this passage, it's easy to forget. We're out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> We're in the south end of the Sinai Peninsula. It's about as bleak as the world gets. Maybe not quite as bad as the Rubal Kali in, in the southern Arabian Peninsula, but, but it's pretty bleak out there. And yet, as you read all this, you, you, you read about all this beautiful gold and all this fine furniture and and all these beautiful uh, tapestries with which the tabernacle would be constructed. And you realize that Israel came away from Egypt with a lot of stuff. God saw to it that they acquired these things before they left. You remember, Israel said to the 
Egyptians, we would like this gold. And the Egyptian says, take all the gold you want, just get out of here before we all die. And so Israel came out of Egypt literally uh, loaded with, with these things. And of course, they will now manifest themselves here. God, God didn't have Israel take all that wealth simply for the purpose of, of them being a wealthy nation. Because you couldn't spend it in the Sinai, that's for sure. So what, what he did was have them take this, at least in part, so that they could, you remember when he first started reading this, uh, this passage, God said, I want the Israelites to give of their own free will towards the manufacture of this tabernacle and all these things. It, it, Moses, go to the people and of their own free will there to give. Don't put any pressure on anyone to give. But of their free will, whatever they give, this is what we'll use to manufacture the tabernacle and all its furnishings. And of course, the people poured it in because God gave them a heart to do that. And from this will come these wonderful structures. Now, we've already spent some time looking at the all-important Ark of the Covenant, a structure which has been totally lost. We have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is today, or if it even exists. Some say it, it may exist. It may be on, in Mount Sinai, in some cave someplace. Others say, no, it's in the Jordan Valley, buried in some cave someplace. Well, that's not impossible. As you probably know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were extracted from caves there in the Jordan River Valley, or the Dead Sea uh, gorge there, and, and they had been there for 2,000 years, so it's possible the ark has been somewhere for 2,500 or 3,000 years. And of course, you know that if, if those of you saw the film Raiders of the Lost Ark, that, that's based on the theme that the ark had been actually still in existence, and it was buried, in, in this case, in, in Egypt. And that's a possibility, because back around the 9th century or so BC, Shishak uh, Pharaoh of Egypt did raid Judea and did capture Jerusalem and did carry things off. It doesn't say in the scripture that the ark was carried off at that time, but we do know that after that the ark is not mentioned. Uh, so it's a possibility, you know. Others say no, it was still there in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, that it was in the Solomonic Temple, that it was then, you know, when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar made his raids, that it was carried off maybe by Jeremiah and, and put somewhere in, in a cave and it's still there to come out again at the end times. Who knows? You know, God alone knows. I think one of the most important things for us to remember about this is that God is a spirit and we that worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And, and God has not preserved anything as a sacred object in itself, not even the Ark of the Covenant. You remember when Moses raised the standard in the wilderness and, and put the, uh, the bronze serpent on it, the Israelites, the scripture tells us later on, were worshiping that thing. And God said, destroy it. I mean, it had been a touchstone where God had worked a great miracle and God said, destroy it. And so I, I think very possibly myself that the ark simply was taken maybe by Nebuchadnezzar, whoever, uh, as many of the other implements were, and, and just simply reformed into some other, you know, structure or just melted down or who knows what. You know. uh, nothing like that is in itself sacred apart from God's presence. Today we're going to look at at least two other implements or furnishings that were part of the, of the tabernacle. Immediately outside the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, beyond the veil was the holy place. 
And in the holy place were located several articles. The first of which is mentioned in this passage is the table of the showbread. This was a very small, low table. In fact, it would be most akin to, in terms of its size, most akin to maybe, um, we call those tables you put out in the middle of the living room? Coffee, coffee table, yeah. <laughs> Something about the size of a coffee table. Low, a relatively small uh, table that sat out there. The dimensions are given there. And if we use the conservative figures, it was about 36 inches long by 18 inches wide by about 27 inches high. So it wasn't a very uh, big table that was built there for the, for the showbread. We, as we read in this passage, it was all totally overlain with, script, uh, with gold. They had the ability in those days to hammer gold into very, very thin sheets and to sheet everything with this this gold and to do it obviously in a beautiful manner. The table was not over, only overlain with gold, but the scripture tells us that there was a hand breadth worth of gold that was put all around the rim of the table. And then to that was fixed at the four corners where the legs were rings, these rings that were gold. And it was these rings that were to accept the poles that, by which the table was to be carried. This table was to be carried very similar to the Ark of the Covenant. It was only to be carried by poles that were passed through these rings and then carried on the shoulders of the, of the Levites. And they would carry it from place to place because, of course, the whole tabernacle was a tent. It was made for a nomadic people so it could be struck and carried and reset up and everything could be put back in place again. And as we're going to discover later on, all of the different Levites had their specific job. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do, and they became very proficient at taking down what they were supposed to take down and setting it up again and carrying it, transporting it in between. So this could be all done very efficiently. As you look at diagrams, and, and Dr. Walmart's going to bring uh, that one of these Sundays, I'll try to remind you, and uh, yeah, uh, there's a model of the, ta of the tabernacle that a student at Simpson made 30 years ago or sometime. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll look at that one of these Sundays. But, you know, it, you look at it, why would they want to keep tearing this thing down, putting it back up again, you know? Because <coughs> even though it wasn't huge, it was, it was still pretty good size. But each, each of the Levites knew exactly what his job was, and, and they could do it very quickly and very efficiently. And obviously, carrying a table like this, no big deal. Shove the poles through the handles. Usually, the poles were left in the handles, so they wouldn't get lost, as it was with the Ark of the Covenant and the table could then be uh, transported. The scripture tells us that the table was placed on the north side of the holy place. Now, you may not be able to figure that out from there, but the, the tabernacle always faced the rising sun. So the entrance of the tabernacle faced east. So anything on the left is to the north. And it was on the left-hand side. So you have the table of the showbread, which was on the north side, opposite the lampstand, which was on the south side, and we'll be talking about that uh, particular uh, feature in a few minutes. Once a week, 12 small loaves of bread were to be freshly baked and were to be placed on the dishes, these golden dishes, which were sitting on the top of the table for the showbread. And each loaf represented, as you might imagine, one of the tribes of Israel. Now, God was not saying that each tribe was nothing but a loaf of bread. 
But God was saying that this particular object represents the tribes as it sits in front of the holy place of the tabernacle. Next to the bread, we read here, were to be jars and bowls in which wine was to be placed and pans in which frankincense was, uh, was to be placed. And all of this was arrayed on the top of the table, of this little table. So you can imagine nothing was really very large, since this was a very small table that would be placed there in front of the veil. Now the bread is known as the bread of the presence. The Hebrew word here literally means face. The bread that was in the face of God. In other words, it was right smack in front of the veil, beyond which was the Ark of the Covenant, where God manifested his presence. So there it was in the presence of God, placed there by the, holy, by the priests before the Holy of Holies. When the new bread was brought in, which was done each week, the old bread, now this may not sound real appetizing to you, but the old bread, which had been sitting there by, uh, for a week, was to be eaten by the priests. Now let's, let's turn, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, verse 5. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons that they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. It wasn't so much that this bread was intended to sustain Aaron and his sons, that that's all they got was 12 loaves of bread which they had to eat in the holy place once a week. It was that it was a, a, a commemoration even in the eating of the bread. It was an offering unto God. And we'll see how that ties together here. First of all, two-tenths of an ephah. Not a common measure. I'm sure that many of you ladies, if you were cooking and it suddenly it said, well, put in two-tenths of an ephah of flour, you'd say, yeah, right, okay. You wouldn't know whether that's a whole bag or a cup or what it was. But as far as they're able to tell today, uh, two-tenths of an ephah would be about true, two dry liters. So an ephah would be about a dry liter, about 100 cubic inches, if you want it that way. So the amount of flour would be about the amount of flour you'd find in a space six by six by six, you know, six inches by six inches by six inches deep. So that'd be about the amount of flour we're talking about here, which would be used to make each, um, each loaf of bread. These weren't light, airy loaves of bread <laughs> like we're uh, accustomed to. They're pretty dense, food-intensive, <laughs> flour-intensive loaves, I guess we could say. Now, what is the purpose of this bread? As we're going to see later on, uh, Aaron and the, his sons, uh, the priests, uh, the, the Levites, were to be supplied their daily needs by the people. The priests and the Levites will, when they settle in the land, each be given a, a city within the land and the lands around it in which they will uh, raise their own sheep and raise their own crops. So it's not like the priests were totally dependent on the dole of the people. So what is the purpose of this bread? 
Obviously, 12 loaves of bread couldn't feed all the priests and, and all the Levites anyway. So what is the purpose of this bread? Well, I think that there are at least two purposes here for this bread, and, and they're very parallel to each other, just in two different realms. Uh, I think, first of all, the purpose of the bread was to illustrate the truth that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer said, part of the prayer was, give us this day our daily bread. And the existence of the bread there was a testimony to the fact that God daily supplied the physical needs of his people. God cares about our physical needs. As I mentioned, as I quoted to you earlier, when, when Jesus said to the woman there at Sychar in John chapter 4 that they that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus is not saying that God doesn't care about the physical realm, that you have to go around in some kind of a Gnostic idea of God. No. God cares about the physical realm. And God cares about the supply of our daily need. And so this is a testimony to that, a constant reminder that God supplies the need. And there is not only the bread there, but also the wine on, on that particular table. But secondly, I think there is an even greater truth here, and this is very parallel to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about the, the uh, service of the communion. In, in the New Testament, we have the bread and the wine also used symbolically. Symbolically of the death and resurrection of Christ, of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The same two uh, items, the bread and the wine, that were on that table are the ones that are on our table, which often says in the front of it, in, in, in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, if you've had some of the commemorative tables that some have. And it's symbolic. I realize that in the um, Catholic uh, tradition of things, the communion eventually became something more than, than the Bible teaches, the, the whole idea of transubstantiation, where when you bless the wine and you bless the bread, it actually becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But as you study scripture, you discover it's, it's purely symbolic in its meaning. And, and so is this bread, and so is this wine here before God on this table. It is symbolic that God not only supplies our temporal needs, but God gives us all that we need to be sustained eternally. He gives us our spiritual sustenance, all that is needed for eternal life, as symbolized by the bread and as symbolized by the wine, which in the New Testament becomes the body of and the blood of Christ. And all of this through faith. You could look at that table and it just looks like a table with some bread and some wine on it. But through faith, we understand these truths. And it means so much more. Now obviously to the priest, it didn't mean the body and blood of Christ because Christ hadn't lived and died yet. But it still symbolized God's provision physically and spiritually for his people. The bread on that table is called the showbread. It's called the showbread because it showed or reminded Israel of these things that I have just tried to highlight here. What's interesting is it is never called a sacrifice in Scripture because that bread was not a sacrifice. It was a symbol of what God did for his people. And what's more important, it is never called the food of God. We talk about, what, what are the terms we use that come from Greek mythology, the, 
the elixir of God and divine food or whatever it is. And, and of course, to the ancient Greeks, they used to put food out that was supposed to be actually consumed by the gods, even though it didn't look like it was consumed, but, you know, it really was. And, of course, this is common in many pagan religions. That's a totally pagan concept. Our God does not need our bread or our wine in any way, shape, or form for his sustenance. And, and it is never intended to be that way or to be interpreted that way at all in Scripture. Now, what is interesting is that even when Israel traveled, that bread was on that table. Let me read to you from Numbers chapter 4, verse 5. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin. Again, reminding you that that's uh, probably the skin of a seagoing manatee, a simpling, similar to the manatee that lives over in the Red Sea, a, um, a mammal, and whose skin is waterproof, and they use that a lot for coverings in the, this part of the world. And shall spread it over, spread over it a cloth of pure blue, and shall insert its poles. Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue, and put on it the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the libation, and the continual bread shall be on it. And they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material, and cover the same with covering of, por of porpoise, and they shall insert its poles. This skin, of course, was waterproof. And so by putting the final covering of this waterproof material over the ark, over the table, over everything else, even if they marched and it rained, it, it would not harm what was under there. There would be no uh, harm brought to any of the items from the tabernacle that were being transported at that particular time. Now the next item that was part of the holy place is described in the next passage in Exodus chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work, its cups, its bulbs, <coughs> calyxes actually, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups <coughs> shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. And a bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it, and all of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it, and its snuffers and their, and, and their trays shall be made of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of gold and all these utensils. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown you on the mountain. Okay. Now you have a clear picture of that with its bulbs and its branches and, 
and its almond blossoms and uh, so forth. This particular uh, item is made to be the principal source of light in the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle would be set up and obviously in the daylight a little light might come in but remember as we're going to see a little later on the description of the tabernacle when they actually set it up there were several layers of material that were piled on top of one another. So inside the tabernacle even in broad daylight it was pretty dark, pretty dark. So this candlestick as it's wrongly called in the King James Version this uh, light lampstand was set up to provide uh, light in the interior of the holy place. Now we don't know exactly how it was formed. We have some description here, but the description is not sufficient for us to be able to picture it perfectly. And verse 40 of this passage indicates that the pattern was more complete as it was given to Moses. And he just outlines here what God said, but you don't have the literal detail by which the metal workers worked to build it, because God says there, and you shall make them after the pattern for them which was shown you on the mountain. So God showed, maybe in a vision or however he did it, he showed Moses what it should look like. And the metalworkers then went ahead to manufacture this lampstand. A talent of gold was used to make this menorah, this, this lampstand. A talent of gold. We, we use the word talent in different ways today. A talent was a unit of weight. It was a unit of weight primarily used for precious metal like gold and silver. We don't know exactly, but the most conservative and best estimates are that a talent of gold was about 66 pounds of gold as it would be translated into our uh, structure. Well, you can beat 66 pounds of gold in some pretty good-sized stuff. I forget what, it, what, what uh, I read. You can take an ounce of gold, which is a very, very small amount of gold. You can beat an ounce of gold into a 300-square-inch sheet of gold leaf. So gold is, as you know, is very malleable, very ductile, can be drawn into long thin wires, uh, is very workable. And so 66 pounds of gold, boy, you got a lot of gold to work with there. And of course they needed it because it sounds like a fairly complex thing here that was being manufactured, particularly since it says, make it all from one piece. Well, I, I think, as I mentioned to you before, that God gave these craftsmen special ability that they certainly hadn't had. I mean, these guys were, at best, stonemasons, mud brick makers in Egypt. You know, some of them probably had other uh, jobs, but how many of them actually had been trained to work with fine gold and to make glorious things out of gold? I don't know. The Scripture doesn't say that any had been. So here we have uh, people who I think are given special ability by God to beat this gold into this particular lampstand. Now what does it look like? Well, a lampstand had a central column that ran up, and then it had these branches, three on one side, three on the other side, which ran out from the central column. Uh, from every single depiction which has survived, the seven lamps were all in the same plane. In other words, the central column came to this height, the first set of branches came to the same height, the second set came to the same height, and the third set came to the same height. 
so that they all were in the same plane. It wasn't like, you know, candle or lights at different levels. They're all in the same plane. That's always the way it's been depicted, wherever it's been shown. <coughs> now, obviously, we don't have a photograph of this one, but we do have some very ancient depictions that illustrate what it very probably looked like. Now, I saw one artistic rendering where the branches came out like this and like this and like this so that they didn't come all out in one straight line, but that doesn't, any of the ancient depictions do not show it that way. We have depictions that are 2,000 years old of what this particular menorah, or one like it at least, looked like. The flames, therefore, were all in one plane. The, the top of the candlestick was made in the shape of an almond blossom with its bulb, it says there, which is literally the calyx. Well, you know, if, if you've ever studied a flower, the flower has this bud, and when it opens like this, you still have this bulbous base underneath. That's the calyx out of which the, the flower has, has opened. And so that's what's being referred to here. It looks like an opened almond blossom with its cup-like base still there. Obviously, it's enlarged. It's, it's blown up from the size of an actual almond blossom. Almond trees are native to this part of the world. Almond trees were prolific in this part of the world. The almond tree is about the very first thing to bloom, signaling the onset of spring. It's always been a, a favorite tree in the Near East. And so that's what they were to emulate here as, as they made this particular lampstand. This, I mean, the countryside sort of lights up when the almond trees blossom, you know, all those beautiful white blossoms coming out. And so it seems to, to indicate here. It, so you have this, this beautiful thing made out of the gold, and the almond blossom is the motif here behind it. Now, the King James Version translates the word menorah as candlestick. Now that's confusing because there were no candles at all associated with this thing as we normally think of a candle. It was not a candlestick, it was a lampstand. Because each of these blossoms at the top was a bowl. And in that bowl was poured olive oil. And a little slot on the side of the bowl had, had the place where the wick was laid. And, and then you lit the wick and it burned off that oil that was in there, this olive oil that was in this little cup flower-shaped cup. So there were no candles involved here at all. It was a, these were oil lamps, seven oil lamps that were at the top of the menorah. The seven branches, why are there seven branches? Some of us, of course, are familiar with the nine branch candles which are associated with Hanukkah. Well, that's totally different. It has nothing to do with this at all. Hanukkah is, is a, a much later celebration that came having really nothing to do with the scripture. I mean, it's, it, it developed in the period between the Old and New Testament, in so-called intertestamental period. It had everything to do with Israel cleansing the temple after it had been profaned by the Greeks who had, who had conquered it from Antioch to the north. And uh, so that has nothing to do with this whatsoever. So if you can wipe any nine-branched or nine-candelabra out of your head and, and think now of a seven-branched menorah, which was depicted or described here for us. Why does it have seven branches? Well, as best as we can tell, the seven branches ref ref reflect the, the perfection of God, as the number seven does uh, throughout Scripture. 
particularly the sevenfold spirit of the living God. Now, let me read two verses to you. One from Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. John is describing his uh, vision of the exalted Lamb. And he says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, for most of us, we think, now, wait a minute, the Trinity I can handle, <laughs> maybe. But now suddenly one member of the Trinity is sevenfold. We got ten now? No, I don't think so. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah, I'll, I'll read the first verse first. Isaiah says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. These are references to the sevenfold manifestation of the one Spirit of the living God. Both the Revelation passage and the Isaiah passage are basically within the same context of the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, Christ. And here we have the Spirit of the Lord, one, the Spirit of wisdom, two, the Spirit of understanding, three, the Spirit of counsel, four, the Spirit of strength, five, the Spirit of knowledge, six, and the Spirit of fear, the fear of the Lord, seven. The sevenfold manifestations or the sevenfold exhibition of the power of the Spirit of the living God. So I, I think that this, at least in part, is represented here in this sevenfold lampstand, seven branches. And as I said, wherever you go through Scripture, you, you, you tend to find the number seven related to God in His fullness, in His holiness, in His completion. And that seems to be symbolic of that. The lampstand had the purpose of giving light physically. It actually burned and the priests could actually see inside the tabernacle while this lamp was burning. And of course the lamp was to be kept perpetually burning. But it was also symbolic. It was symbolic of the light of God. That God is the light of the world. God is the light of his people. That his word is the lamp unto the path of the people of God. Second Samuel chapter 22 and verse 29. This is uh, one of David's Psalms. And he says in verse 29, For thou art my lamp, O Lord. The Lord illumines my darkness. Now, he's not talking about God being a flashlight that he uses to get out in a dark night to find where his lost sheep are. He's talking about God being the spiritual lamp of his life, showing him where to go in, in, the, in the darkness of this world, spiritually speaking, is what he's talking about. I mentioned to you two weeks ago when we went through the... Uh, kind of did a brief description of our trip to Europe and then last Sunday in church I mentioned it in the three services. There are times when you can really sense spiritual darkness. As a Christian who has God in your life and the Spirit of God living within you, you can sense spiritual darkness where people living in it who don't know the Lord have no concept that there's any darkness here at all spiritually. 
And I mentioned the fact that we really sensed this most, more in Berlin than anywhere else on our trip. It seemed like a, a city where the, the spirit of evil just hovered over it like a blanket. And you just had this depressed, spiritually depressed feeling there in, in Berlin. Not that you didn't feel that way in other cities in Europe too, but particularly in Berlin did we sense that. And, then, and I mentioned you know, some of the possible explanations for that. I mean, Berlin has a long, at least a 200-year tradition of a great deal of paganism. And of course, it came to a high point during World War II uh, when Hitler was in power and, and the Nazi SS actually worshipped the spirits of demons and committed themselves to the kingdom of the occult as part of becoming, you know, the, the, the elite core of the German oppression. And, and a lot of that just lingers there uh, still, even to this day. And the light of God is the only light that will break through that kind of darkness. The light of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah is talking about a time that will come in the future. And he says in verse 19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and all the days your people, your morning, will be finished. God is our light. And of course, this is repeated in Revelation as it talks about the holy city coming down from God. There's no need for the sun or the moon because God is the light of the eternal kingdom. You imagine, I mean, how that's so, so hard for us uh, to, to conceive of because even in this room, we can spot the sources from which the light is coming. You go outside and we can spot the sun, we can spot the moon, and we have this sense of light coming from a specific source. But imagine being in the kingdom of God in which light just emanates from everywhere. And there isn't probably a single source unless it be the throne of God. But anyway, whatever, it just will probably, I think, just, just brilliant indirect lighting will come from everywhere simply because of the presence of God. Because God, we're told in the scripture, is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. No darkness at all. And we always, you know, tend to, to translate that into physical things. But, you know, it is spiritual light and spiritual darkness he's talking about. But in the kingdom of heaven, everything will be spiritual, so it will seem physical to us because we'll see it with her eyes as well as with our spirits. So the lampstand here in the tabernacle literally lit up this holy place right outside the veil so that the priests could see what they were doing. But its primary purpose was to symbolize eternal light. The eternal light of God's presence. Now, conversely, the lack of a lampstand represents spiritual darkness. And there's a couple of passages I'd like to uh, just turn to briefly here, which uh, illustrate this. I'll just turn to Proverbs 24.20, where we read... For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now that could be interpreted, of course, as his life being snuffed out. But I think spiritually we're talking about, you know, he'd be cast into 
eternal darkness. And then, of course, it's really specific uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, when uh, God, through John, is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. If you've ever studied the history of Ephesus, you know that if they must not have, in the long run, repented. Because not only was the church at Ephesus wiped out, but Ephesus was wiped out. Ephesus is nothing but a ruin today. There is no church there. It's one of the seven churches. Ephesus was a great city at the time of Christ. Huge city. And the church there struggled. And, and Paul wrote the whole epistle uh, to the Ephesians, to that group. And it's, it's a wonderful epistle, as you well know. And yet, in the long run, the church failed. And the lampstand was removed. And all of Ephesus is gone as a living city. It's very, very dangerous to have the lampstand removed. The presence of God's Spirit pulled out because the people are not worshiping God and, and serving Him as they were intended to do. They that worship God must worship Him in spirit and truth. But so much of the church, oh, this was really, really evident to us in Europe, <clears throat> the church is just a cultural thing there. Almost everybody in Europe belonged to you know, they, they would claim that they were Catholic or they were Lutheran or they were Reformed or something else, but it didn't mean anything to them in terms of any real spiritual life or even attendance in church. Hardly anybody goes to church over there. I think it's, it's really important for us to pray that somehow a lampstand will be put back into some of the great cities of Europe where Ulrich Zwingli preached the Reformation, where John Calvin preached the Reformation, where Luther preached the Reformation. And, and now there's not only not any Reformation, there's no spiritual life at all, except in very, very few little tiny churches here and there. Nothing. I mean, there's, you can imagine a city of four million the size of Berlin, and there is not in that city a church like this one, a church of 1,500 in a city of 75,000. There's not a church this size of real believers in a city of four million. So you can imagine, there's hardly any light in that city. So we need to pray that God will restore the candlestick of His glory and that there will be a revival that will sweep through the great center from which Christianity spread to so many corners of the world 200 years ago. The menorah became a primary symbol of Judaism. And it's clearly depicted in the Arch of Titus. Titus was the Roman general who conquered Jerusalem in the year 70. That which Jesus had predicted would happen. You know, when not one stone of the temple would be left upon another, as he spoke to his disciples. Remember, they said, Oh, Lord, look at this great temple, how wonderful. He says, what One stone will be standing upon another. Jesus was referring to an event which would only occur 40 years later in the lifetime of most of those apostles, or at least some of them. And Titus was the one responsible. Burn Jerusalem. They pried the stones off. And in his triumphal procession into Rome, the objects out of the temple of Herod were carried in procession, in the triumph, as they called it, and when Titus became the Roman emperor in 79, he had an arch built. 
This was, uh, you know, if you've ever been to Paris, you know that there's a, a structure called the Arc de Triomphe on the Champs-Élysées. And uh, Napoleon had that built in honor of the army, of, of the French army. But that was modeled after the numerous arches that had been built by Roman emperors in honor of their great glory as victorious generals. And, and Titus had one built. And what's interesting is on, the, on this arch was carved the triumph. And it shows the menorah being carried in this triumphal procession. It's the most obvious of all the features taken out of the temple that was actually depicted in this triumph. And it shows the seven-branched menorah, all of the branches in a line, all coming to the same height uh, there. And, and of course, this, this was carved 1900 years ago. And there are tombs in Israel where menorah are actually carved on the tombs, and they always look like that. They always look the same. So this, this seems to indicate that that was probably what this, this particular piece or furnishing looked like as it was completed. Today, the menorah is a symbol of the state of Israel. And if you go to the central part of the city of, of uh, New Jerusalem, <laughs> modern Jerusalem, <clears throat> not the one coming down out of heaven, it hasn't come yet, I don't think, but uh, to the west of the old city, and you go to the hill where the Knesset is, the Israeli parliament, and right out in front of it is this very large menorah, seven branches coming all out in one plane to one height. And carved on this are the Old Testament figures, heroes of the state of Israel in its, in its biblical past. Unfortunately, the light of God is not there. And we need to pray, as the scripture says, for the peace of Jerusalem and that God will bring his people back to himself. And that those that had the truth and had the light of God's presence there in that tabernacle will one day again know the light of the reality of, of God. As I trust we do, and I, as I hope we do not take for granted because that candlestick can be removed. That candlestick has passed out of churches in America. That candlestick has passed out of what were at one time Christian colleges in America. That candlestick is gone because God is no longer worshipped there. Anything having to do with the Christian religion is just so many words and, and so much form and so much cultural practice and no spiritual life. We need to pray that the candlestick not only will remain but that it will burn brightly spiritually, here, in this church, in this city, in our college, Simpson, and across this country, and we'll be restored to the great cities of Europe and be restored in Israel. We've got a lot of things to pray about. Well, next uh, Sunday, we're going to look specifically at the tabernacle itself, this structure that God commanded Moses to build.